If you take your Bibles, please turn to uh, Matthew chapter 23. This morning we start a new series in the Gospel of Matthew. The name of the, the series is Hypocrisy and Grace. Um, in this gospel, Jesus started his teaching ministry with a, a lengthy discourse that we know as the Sermon on the Mount that is found in Matthew chapter 5, uh, continues until Matthew chapter 7. But now he is concluding his teaching ministry with, with another discourse, and this is the Lord's last public sermon that he's going to be giving, um, and it starts in Matthew chapter 23, goes through to the end of chapter 25. This is a similar length to the, the Sermon on the Mount, and both discourses close with the phrase, it happened when Jesus had finished all of these words. So the Sermon on the Mount began with the Beatitudes, a series of blessings, whereas this closing discourse begins with Jesus denouncing the scribes and the Pharisees and pronouncing a series of woes upon them. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the course of the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at these woes that the, the Lord pronounces upon the Pharisees. So chapters 21 and 22 are full of conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. Chapter 21 began with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And it moved quickly to his cleansing of the temple. This was a highly provocative act that sparked conflict with the religious leaders. And then in chapter 22, Jesus gave the parable of the, the wedding banquet. And he was warning them, for many are called, but few are chosen. So the Pharisees and Sadducees then tried three times to, to trap Jesus. Uh, but of course, he was able to slip through their, their traps. So now we come to chapter 23, where we will be studying. And Jesus speaks to the crowds. We see this in verse 1. He speaks to his disciples. And he addresses the, the spiritual failures of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, but we see later on, he, he, he laments over Jerusalem. And he talks about the coming destruction upon Jerusalem that took place in 70 AD. So let's read this morning from Matthew. We're just going to be looking at the first 12 verses and just a general introduction to this, um, to this passage this morning. So Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with the finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, 
For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray before we go into the passage this morning. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have to come and worship you this morning. Thank you for the songs that we could sing, the word, Lord, that we could hear, the word that we could pray, the word, Lord, that we could sing to each other, and the word that now we can hear. We ask, Lord, that you would please help us to, to learn, help us, Lord, to humble ourselves. Uh, you've told us that we need to pray when we lack wisdom, and we pray this morning for it. We ask, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to be willing to examine our hearts and allow the Spirit of God to examine our hearts, and that we would give him free course, that he would convict us, that we would conform to the image of your dear Son. Lord, we know this passage is for us. We know you're speaking to your disciples. So, Lord, we do pray that as you lead us through this passage, Lord, that we would indeed be not just the hearers of your word, but also the doers as well. And we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder if you've ever heard the expression, face the music. Well, here's how the phrase came about. This is the title of my sermon this morning, Face the Music. So many years ago, a man wanted to play in the Imperial Orchestra, but he couldn't play a single note. Since he was a person of great wealth and influence, he demanded to be allowed to join the orchestra so that he could perform in, in front of the king. And the conductors agreed to let him sit in the second row of the orchestra. Even though he couldn't read music, he was given a, a flute, and when a concert would begin, he would raise the instrument, he would, he would pucker his lips, and he would move his fingers. And he went through all the motions of playing, but he never made a, a single sound. And this deception went on for years. The deception went on, in fact, for two years. Then one day, a new conductor took over the Imperial Orchestra, and he told the orchestra that he wanted to personally audition all of the musicians to see how well that they could play. Well, the audition, of course, would weed out all of those who did not meet the standards, the new standards that he would set, and then he would dismiss them from the orchestra. So one by one, the musicians performed in his presence. And frantic with worry, when it was his turn, the phony flutist pretended to be sick. And the doctor who was ordered to examine him, however, declared that he was perfectly well. And the conductor insisted that the man appear and that he demonstrate his, his skill. So shamefacedly, the man had to confess that he was a fake. And that was the day that he had to face the music. And that's where we get the expression, face the music. And I think there's a relevant application for us here, especially as a church. Sometimes people go through the, the motions of being a Christian. They go through the motions of the Christian life. They attend church. 
They give their tithes. They might go to youth group or they might be able to even recite Bible verses. They might be able to speak the Christianese language. In reality though, they are fakes. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were spiritual fakes. They were very much like the phony flutist, pretending to, to know and to love God. And going through the motions is a dangerous substitute for true Christianity. Now we can sing Christian songs without considering the person to whom and about whom we are singing. We, are so, we so easily lose sight of who God is, that he is the creator of this universe who is even now present in this world. And we forget that God knows the, the thoughts of our hearts and the, the attitudes of our minds. But if we take him seriously, it will make a difference in our lives. You know, it's impossible to live hypocritically when we take God seriously. And Matthew 23 records the most scathing, severe message that Jesus ever preached. This was his last public message. And seven times the Lord called the Pharisees hypocrites. And the term hypocrite is the English transliteration of the Greek word hypocrites. And the term has an interesting history as it comes from the world of ancient theater. If you're in the entertainment industry, you'll understand this. Before computers and special effects, actors on stage required uh, simpler tools to change character during a production. And they would often carry different masks with them onto the stage. And to change the character, they would simply hold the appropriate mask in front of their face and they would change their voice and they would imitate speech and they would change their, their, their behavior and their conduct um, according to the character that they were portraying. And the audience knew that a new character was on stage when a, when a new mask was, was held up. And that mask in the Greek was termed a hupokrites. A hupokrites. And the word eventually developed into hypocrites. And this is the word that today we are very familiar with, sadly. So basically, a hypocrite is a, is a play actor. And hypocrisy refers to pretension, to pretending to be some person that, that we are not. It would seem that most of the Pharisees had a, had a form of godliness without the abiding power of a genuine relationship with God. And Jesus, of course, could see straight into their hearts. They were people who pretended to be religious. They wore a religious cloak that sought to hide the, the ugliness inside their hearts. They wore a mask of piety, but behind it was a, was a sinful impurity. And there are eight woes that the Lord pronounces upon the Pharisees. Though it was a message of great severity... It was also clearly a message of great sorrow. It was scathing, but it ended with a cry of sadness. Look at verse 37. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets 
and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. So we can see the sadness here at the end of the, our Lord's message. The, la- the Lord's last public message, of course, would not have been very popular with the, with the crowds. But notice at verse 1, Jesus is speaking to the crowd as well as his disciples. He's not directly addressing the Pharisees. He is directing his message to his disciples. So my first point this morning is a message for all. Notice there in verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. We tend to place a great emphasis on people's last words. Keep in mind that this is the last public sermon that Jesus preached before he died. And because of this, we we need to pay attention to the message that has been spoken. Hypocrisy, the Lord teaches, is is a horrible thing. It's horrible for us personally and horrible for others that are affected by the lies. And we need to be beware. Even though the Lord condemns the Pharisees in this message, His purpose is not simply for us to point our fingers at the, at the Pharisees and criticize them. The Lord is addressing us. He's addressing His disciples. It wasn't just the 12 that were with Him at this point. There were many other disciples that were following Him. And of course, the crowd that was following him. Um, Many people were there to listen to what Jesus was saying. And I'm sure there were many unbelievers in that crowd as well. But we aren't to be just pointing our fingers at the Pharisees. Otherwise, we would be doing what they were guilty of, being self-righteous. We are all in danger, in fact, of behaving like the Pharisees. And that's why Jesus warns his disciples against this. One author, Christian author who lived in the early 1900s, G.K. Chesterton, he wrote a book called The Everlasting Man. And this book led a young atheist by the name of C.S. Lewis to become a Christian. Let me read what G.K. Chesterton wrote in his book. He said, No man's really any good till he knows how bad he is, till he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees. Wise words. Wise words. My goal through this series is not to try and condemn us, not to condemn anyone in this room. My goal is to point us to Christ, the only hope we have for the forgiveness of our sins. And I don't think it is any coincidence that the Lord has led us here as a church after we have finished the the letters of John. I think there's a clear connection between what we've been learning in the letters of John and the warnings that are here in Matthew chapter 23. I want to show you quickly. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3, in verse 14, the apostle says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. And Jesus says in the Gospel of John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So the Apostle John and Jesus are jealous for us as believers to know 
that this condemnation, this judgment is in fact behind us. Death is behind us because our judgment happened when when Jesus was judged in our place. He became sin for us. He was judged instead of us. And our death happened when, when Jesus died. And therefore, as a result, new life is in us. And this life cannot be taken away. It's eternal. That's the assurance that John and Jesus want for all of us. Remember the key verse in 1 John chapter 5. We mentioned it many times. Verse 13. I write these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know you have eternal life. There's another connection from the letters of John that's relevant to our series here in Matthew 23. Remember the false teachers in in 1 John taught that the divine Christ never became flesh. They they taught that he was never incarnated. They separated his divinity from his humanity. Remember, that was the problem at at that time. And this, remember, belief, this false belief had a practical moral effect on the way these false teachers viewed their Christian life. Just as they they disconnected the person of Christ from their ordinary physical life, they disconnected being a Christian from ordinary physical life. So they would say, I'm a Christian when I go to church, but then when I leave, I'm just a normal person. I'm a Christian when I go to Bible study, but then when I'm at work, I, I can do what I want. I can behave like I want. And sadly, that same philosophy has crept into many people's hearts and minds. We see one of the clearest places is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. John says, little children, let no one deceive you. Remember, the false teachers, they they were deceiving them. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. So what's John saying? He's saying, beware of the false teachers because what they say is that you can be righteous and not practice righteousness. You can be a Christian and sin. That's what they're saying. And he says, do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. So the deceivers were saying, well, you can be righteous and and not practice righteousness and behave as you want. And Jesus is really saying the opposite. Here in Matthew 23, the Pharisees were preaching righteousness, but they were not practicing righteousness. And Jesus tells us that. He goes on to say that we are to observe what they teach, but not what they do. Observe what they teach, but not what they do. That is hypocrisy, folks. That is the definition of hypocrisy. And John says the only people who are righteous are the ones who practice righteousness, not the ones who practice sin. And I've said this a million times, and I think it's it's relevant again. Belief will always affect our behavior. Belief will always affect our behavior. And that is what John says again and again in 1 John. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, he says, You know that he is righteous. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So in other words, 
The doing of righteousness is the evidence. It is the confirmation of being born again. Or consider 1 John 3 verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God, God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So there's this practice, either of righteousness or of sin. And the practice of sin is, is evidence, it's confirmed that one is not born of God by the way you behave. So the practice here is the key. The practice of sin is the key. John is not saying that Christians never sin. Please hear me. He is not saying that Christians are perfect. He is not saying that. What he's saying is that we practice righteousness. We practice righteousness. He made this clear in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As Christians, we have sin. He said it again in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what then? Well, thank God for verse 9, stuck in the middle there. Verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's that practicing righteousness. Even though we, we fail, even though we fall short of, of the standard God has for us, we don't live in that mud. We don't live in that muck. We don't live in that vomit. We repent of our sins. We ask God to forgive us our sins. And we continue to practice righteousness. We continue to pursue holiness. And I think we are forgetful people. We would all agree with that. And that is why we need to continually be reminded and be pointed to Christ. He is the only hope that we have of the forgiveness of our sins. We cannot earn our own forgiveness. We cannot do anything to wash ourselves clean from the filth of the flesh that is so entrenched in our nature. Even as Christians, we have remaining sin. And we fight against this flesh. This is our battle, our constant battle. John told us, we battle against the flesh, we battle against the world, and we battle against the devil. This is a constant battle. But we have Christ that we can run to, folks. We have Christ that we can fly to, who is our advocate, who is our propitiation. And 1 John 1, 9 is written to us. It's not written to unbelievers. And I think a lot of times people use that verse in, 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 in evangelism type of way, in evangelistic type of way. That, this is for Christians. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need to be reminded that our only hope is in Christ. He is the one who promises to do two things, to cleanse us and to forgive us from our sins. If we confess our sins. So as Christians, we need to be practicing holiness. This is the battle that we fight. And when we find ourselves slipping into a careless, kind of lukewarm frame of, of mind about our, our sinfulness, 
or we become indifferent to the way that we, we speak to people or indifferent to the way that we, we treat people or we become indifferent to even our, our sin and we, and we start to justify it. We start to make excuses for it. That is when the truth of 1 John 3 verse 9 must have its effect. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. We don't want that to become the pattern of our lives. We don't want to be known as people who enjoy sin, who don't care about the way that we live. We don't want to be known by that practice. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And it's the Spirit of God that opens up our eyes. It's the Spirit of God who helps us see sin. Unbelievers are blind to sin. They are slaves of sin. But because we have the Spirit of God, He helps us see sin. And He convicts us of our sin. And by the power of the Spirit of God, we are turned to our advocates. And we are prompted to run to the one who is our propitiation, the one who grants us mercy, the one who grants us forgiveness, the one who grants us righteousness. And we confess our sins and we receive his cleansing. And our love for Christ is renewed and the sweetness of our relationship is, is recovered and the hatred of our, of our sin is restored. And the joy of the Lord again becomes our, our strength. So even the Apostle John warns against hypocrisy. If we claim to be born again, when our life contradicts it, where there's a practice of sin, then we probably are not Christians in the first place. We cannot say we're Christians and behave another way. That is hypocrisy. The Wordsmith Dictionary describes hypocrite as one who states or pretends to hold beliefs or principles he or she does not actually practice. That's the definition of hypocrite. One who states or pretends to hold beliefs or principles he or she does not actually practice. So not everyone in the crowd that Jesus was speaking to were Christians and they probably didn't take that message very very um, happily. And it would be naive for us to think that everyone in our room this morning, in this crowd, is a Christian that is practicing righteousness. So this message is for all of us, folks. And there are people here who need to be born again. And there are people here who need to persevere in our fight against sin by practicing righteousness. Dostovsky, who was a Russian novelist and a Christian, he once said, Above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to a point that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him. And that's really the sin of self-deception. And this is nothing more than hypocrisy. So as we go through this series, let us... Allow the Spirit of God to examine our hearts and convict us of our sins so that we will run towards our advocate, so that our love for Christ will be renewed and our hatred of sin will, will be restored so that the joy of the Lord will become our strength.
I only have two points this morning, so don't worry. This is not going to be a long sermon. <laughs> it's hot in here. In more ways than one. <laughs> Second point this morning is the divine trial. The divine trial. So in the opening 12 verses, the Lord charges the Pharisees with hypocrisy. And as he does so, he presents the evidence for this charge. He exposes their hearts by exposing their deeds. And in exposing their sin, he exposes their, their wicked character as well. Look at verse 4. Jesus says in verse 4 that these Pharisees preach but do not practice. These spiritual leaders said one thing and they did completely the opposite. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says that these men sat on the seat of Moses, which simply means they had a place of spiritual authority. But Jesus charges them in verse 5 with the sin of doing their religious deeds to be seen of men. They had a place of spiritual authority. They had a place of spiritual influence. But they abused this influence. Rather than pointing people to God, they pointed people away from God. They were pointing people actually away from the kingdom of God. And Jesus held these Pharisees in contempt. He held them in contempt for their empty profession of godliness. So the charge is laid here in the opening verses of Matthew 23. And the charge is that they are hypocrites. They are accused of hypocrisy. So based on this evidence that the Lord is giving here, the verdict is clearly repeated in this passage. He says, you are guilty as charged. And then he pronounces woes upon them. And the Lord begins this condemnation of the Pharisees with, with the word woe. Look at verse 13. It starts with the word woe. Look at verse 14. The word woe is mentioned there. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 23, the word woe. Look at verse 25. Look at verse 27, the word woe. Look at verse 29. So eight times the Lord pronounces this woe upon him. What does the word woe mean? Well, it's a strong word, and it refers to a, to a horror, to, to a horror. It means to be in a state of intense distress or intense hardship. It speaks of disaster. So the Lord is cursing them, in fact. He's cursing these Pharisees. The Lord is essentially saying to the Pharisees, what disastrous and terrible consequences you have reaped upon yourselves for your hypocritical living, the, the, your hypocritical lives. And these consequences were not just temporary consequences. Please understand this. Remember, in 70 AD, Israel was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. It is now 2019. The temple has still not been rebuilt. These are eternal consequences that the Lord is talking about here because of their hypocritical leadership. So the emphasis is upon this irreversible consequence, this woe. God's divine verdict here was that horror, sorrow, and judgment was awaiting the Pharisees because of their, their hypocritical leadership. And these men, along with the priests, were in a position of responsibility. They were in a privileged position to influence people to honor God and to love God 
and to obey God. But they abused us. I don't know how they came into this position in the first place. But regardless, they had, they had assumed this role as the, the spiritual shepherds of the nation of Israel. They were guardians of this gate that led to godliness. But because these men whom Jesus addressed lived as hypocrites, they said one thing and they did another thing, they, they led people in completely the opposite direction by what they were doing, by what they were doing. So these leaders failed to take God seriously. And please hear me. This is the main point of our introduction this morning. They failed to take God seriously. They took religion seriously. You know, they took themselves very seriously. They wanted the, the, the best seats. They wanted people to, to recognize them in the marketplaces. They wore the, the, the nicest clothes, the religious clothes. They took themselves very seriously. But they did not take God seriously. The result was that they did not take their responsibilities seriously towards God's chosen people. They failed to shepherd them. They failed to lead them. And they were guilty of being this religious play actor. And as a result, they were condemned. You know, sadly, this approach to the things of God did not die with the, the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees as an organization, they, they no longer exist today. But we see similar behavior in, in Christian circles all around the world. There are many so-called leaders, many who appoint themselves, who claim to be shepherds of, of God's people, and they claim to be guardians of, of God's truth and guardians of God's church, but yet they do not take God seriously. You know, they... They challenge Christians to live God's way while, while they themselves live in a completely opposite way. And sadly, sometimes these leaders have no idea what is God's way. So they end up leading others astray. They make up their own way. But such hypocrisy is not reserved just for the leaders. Rather, many people who call themselves Christians live in ways that is clear that there is no fear of God before their eyes. They do not take God seriously. Consider for a moment, you know, your wedding vows that you have made before God, a covenant that you have made before God. Do you take God seriously? Do you take those vows seriously? You know, when parents stand here before the church and they dedicate their children to the Lord, they are making a covenant with us that they promised to raise their children in the fear of the Lord. Two years later, three years later, are you still taking that covenant seriously, that promise seriously that you made before God? What about the covenant that you make as a church member, that promise you've made before God? Are you taking God seriously? Are you taking that promise seriously? So this message is not just reserved for the, the leaders. The message, I'm convinced, we will miss the point of this message if, we, if all we do is just point fingers at those bad guys who lived so long ago. Now, Alex is not here, so I can, I can pick on him, but 
he often tells me when, he's, when I'm preaching, he's, he's often nudging Sylvia and saying, pastor's talking to you, pastor's talking to you. <laughs> Let's not do that, folks. This message is for us. This message is for us. The reality is we are just like these bad guys. One pastor and author who wrote a book, Extreme Righteousness, Tom Hoverstall, he, he had this to say. He said, the number one reason to accurately understand the Pharisees is because of their personal relevance. The Pharisees provide one of the best mirrors the Bible offers for us to see our religious selves as we really are. Yes, we are the Pharisees. Look at the closing verses in verse 34 to verse 39. After the pronouncing his verdict upon these Pharisees, now the Lord pronounces the sentence. In verse 39, Jesus says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children Together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So today has just been an overview. Just been an overview of Matthew chapter 23. And I trust that this has persuaded you that this is essential teaching for all of us. I mean, if you don't, if you're not convinced, I encourage you, go and read Matthew chapter 24. Go and read Matthew 24 when you get home. In that chapter, we hear our Lord's pronouncements on, on Jerusalem, the judgment upon Jerusalem. And that prophesied judgment has everything to do with, with the condemnation that's recorded here in Matthew 23. Hypocritical leaders, hypocritical followers will be judged by God. So let me just conclude here with some application this morning. The Lord revealed and He has preserved these chapters in Matthew not just to provide us a, a history lesson for the church of another generation. No, the Lord has given this to us so that we might understand ourselves. Paul's words to the Corinthians are very relevant for us this morning. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as we conclude, Paul says in verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We just finished looking at the, the bad example of Diotrephes. And now we're going to look at the, the bad example of the Pharisees. But these examples have been recorded for us. 
The scriptures are telling us. They've been preserved for us, recorded in scripture for our instruction so that we will find victory in Christ, so that we will find confidence in God. That's what, the, that's what Paul is saying. Now, self-confidence leads us to disaster. But God-confidence leads to joy and it leads to security. God gives grace to the humble, but He resists the proud. Jesus, speaking to His followers in verse 11 and verse 12 there in Matthew 23, He says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Please consider the example of Jesus for a moment. No one on earth has stooped down as low in humble service as our Savior Jesus did. Philippians 2 verse 7 and 8 tells us, He emptied Himself. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, even the most humiliating death ever devised by man on the cross. And that's the path of greatness in God's kingdom, in God's economy. Humble service. Humble service. If we would be truly great, if we aspire to be great in God's eyes, and I hope you do, not in a proudful way, if you want to be used for God's glory, if you want to be a vessel unto God's honor, if you want your life to count for the, the glory of God, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. We take a course of action that is very different from that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And my prayer is that as we journey together through Matthew 23, we would humble ourselves before God and allow the Spirit of God to examine our hearts in light of His Word. And as we learn what it means to be a hypocrite, may we be more determined than ever to seek Christ, to believe His gospel, and to live with Christian integrity that reflects and displays the beauty of God to the world around us. Remember, this series is called Hypocrisy and grace. So thank God for His grace. Thank God that even though we will find this, this oil of the Pharisees in our hearts, we can find forgiveness and healing in Christ if we humble ourselves and repent. May the Lord add His blessings to the Word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, thankful, Lord, that you understand our human condition. Lord, there's nothing more real than what we read this morning. 
Lord, you know the ugliness of our sinful natures. And if we are honest, Lord, we would not want to go there and live there. But yet, Lord, you humbled yourself, you emptied yourself, and you came and lived in a broken world, in a world that was affected by sin, that was cursed by sin, a world that was full of anger, a world that was full of jealousy, a world that was full of hatred, a world that was full of lust. And you came and lived amongst us so that you could save us from our sin. You would die on that cruel cross, a terrible, terrible cross, so that we can be cleansed from our sin, so that we can be set free and washed by your blood. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. Thank you for doing that. And Lord, as we consider the remaining sin as believers that is still in us, that we still battle with, we pray, Lord, that you'd give us the victory. We pray that we would run to you, that we would look to you, that we would not practice sin, that we would not be happy living a nominal Christian life that is lukewarm, but a life, Lord, that makes a difference for your glory. A life, Lord, that reflects Christ in every area, in our marriages, in our, in our families, in our work, in our relationships with our friends, in our difficult situations, in all our situations. You are God. You are ruling and reigning. Lord, please, let us not waste our lives by believing the lies of the devil, by entertaining sin. May we run to the cross. May we run to our advocates. May we run to our propitiation and live in his arms. Take your word, Lord, and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.